Welcome to Lung Cancer Concert, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and islc.org in the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Narjus Duma. Welcome to Lung Cancer Concert. I'm Dr. Narjus Duma, an assistant professor at the University of Wisconsin and at thoracic oncologist. I'm your host for this episode of Lung Cancer Concert. Today, I'm honored to have Dr. Nathan Pennell. We also discuss the challenges of practicing as a thoracic oncologist from the administrative burden, from the things he has seen as the practice has evolved over time. And finally, we're going to talk about how things have changed since the beginning of COVID-19. Dr. Pennell is a professor of medicine and vice chair of clinical research at the Towsie Cancer Institute, and he's also the director of thoracic oncology. It's important to mention that the practices and the practice challenges that we're going to talk, they may vary by geographic location. They also vary by patient individual characteristics, insurance, and the support that the physicians may have at their clinics or their institutions. There are unique challenges to the United States based on the healthcare that may not apply to some of our listeners outside. But we hope to discuss the human aspect of being a thoracic oncologist and also the administrative challenges that we encounter every day. Nate? Thank you for joining us today to discuss this very important aspect of thoracic oncology. Well, thank you so much for inviting me, Narjas. It's uh, it's really a pleasure for me to have seen your career develop, and, and I'm excited that you're doing this podcast. So thank you for uh, thinking of me. Um, I will, however, take a little bit of an issue with uh, wanting me to talk about how things have changed. I haven't actually been doing this for as long as people might think. Uh, I've only been practicing for about 14 years. So, But things have changed quite a lot, even in that limited amount of time. Well, we can say that when you started, there was no Pembroke. Is that accurate? That is accurate. <laughs> That's true. So I guess we're, I'm going to use that. Um, <laughs> I'm thankful that you're here. I know you for a while, and you have provided me with career advice that I still hold today that I remember one sunny day in San Diego still. So <laughs> it is hope that the people that are listening can get some of those little tips for you that have helped me in my joint career. So let's talk a little bit about the changes in oncology practice. And you have been around for 14 years, which I still think is a good amount of time. <laughs> what have you seen change like from the day one of you as an attendant to last week, for example? Well, things have changed dramatically, I would say, since I first started. You know, when I was really just in fellowship in the mid-2000s, and it was not hard to get a fellowship position in a lung cancer group at that time. I, I think that there was not a lot of enthusiasm for going into lung cancer care because at that time, the median survival for people with stage four lung cancer was about 10 months. And the treatments were typically platinum doublet chemotherapy. And uh, I think the excitement when I was just uh, coming out of fellowship was people were starting to give bevacizumab, the anti-angiogenic with chemotherapy. And people were talking about giving pemetrexid, and it might be slightly more beneficial and less toxic to people with non-squamous, non-small cell lung cancer. And of course, what really got me excited about a career in lung cancer was that they had discovered 
EGFR mutations in certain people with non-small cell lung cancer, but there was not yet broad agreement about how important that was or whether that would even end up being an important biomarker. But probably the biggest change when I first started in 2007 was when I first started taking care of lung cancer patients, I used to tell people that unfortunately about half of the people that I took care of died in the first year that I was caring for them and the other half died in the second year. And so at a certain point, I was uh, seeing new people at about the same rate that the patients I was taking care of were passing away. And it was, uh, it was hard. Um, but the thing, things have changed dramatically since then. Now I'm routinely treating people that are living many years. Now, when I talk to people about the potential for how long they can live with lung cancer, it's now in years with an S as opposed to a year or less. I, I think that's significant. And my interest for lung cancer started early on. And I remember talking in residency to my mentors and they're like, oh, lung cancer, sure. And you didn't have a lot of like enthusiasm because that was before <laughs> pembrolizumab was approved when I was a first year resident. And now I see how many trainees are so interested in joining us. And it's just inciting. And I get to interview them for fellowship. And they're like, oh, the science is so great and all of this. And I hope that this movement continues because we have to eliminate not only the stigma, but also the perception that the diagnosis of lung cancer is just a death sentence because there are many treatments. That is absolutely true. Lung cancer is the most exciting field in oncology, I can say with no bias whatsoever. From screening, you know, when I started my career, there was no screening for lung cancer, but now we actually can prevent significant numbers of deaths by screening high-risk people with low-dose CT scans to biomarker testing, which has made things more complicated. I mean, you can't just dial up carbotaxol for every patient anymore. Now we have to do biomarker analysis, looking for a whole host of potential genetic mutations or gene fusions that have remarkably effective treatments available if we detect them. And then of course, as you mentioned, immunotherapy has changed everything. And probably almost every patient with lung cancer is now gonna get immunotherapy at some point, most of them as their initial treatment, whether alone or in combination with chemo. And now we can actually talk about significant chances of living, not just a year or two years, but longer than five years, potentially with your cancer in remission and, and some people even being essentially cured with metastatic disease. I've, I've seen it with my own eyes for some of incredible patients with huge burdens of disease that I would never have expected to live very long now, you know, off of treatment for years and just coming back for periodic visits just to say hi. It's I, I would agree that you're, uh, the trainees should be excited about going into lung cancer. I, I think that's, that's inciting. But I think one aspect that we often don't talk about is also, you know, as thoracic oncologists, we still lose patients to this disease. And it doesn't get easier. I, I, I specialize in younger women with lung cancer. And I think, you know, finding ways, I think, for the younger generation they're listening to this to cope with the loss i think is very important they are living longer but i think it's still the burden with that and nate in those cases how do you cope i usually cope with chocolate i probably <laughs> find a healthy way to do it i crying is always a good way 
and mostly crying, eating chocolate. Nice. Uh, you know, and over time you learn how to cope. But in the last 14 years, how how have you learned to cope with the loss of these patients? You know, some of them, we know them for years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, unfortunately, um, as more and more young people and people who've never smoked are getting lung cancer, um, and of course, people like that often gravitate to see people like you and I, because we're at academic centers that that have uh, clinical trials and other options available. Um, we are, are changing the face of lung cancer and what we see. So the average age of someone with lung cancer is in their 70s, and then, and very common to have people in their 80s or older. And you know, that's kind of what I signed up for when I went into lung cancer. That's sort of the patient population I really enjoyed working with were these really um, older folks, you know, often blue collar people. And now uh, so many more of the people that I see are in their 30s, 40s, 50s, from all walks of life. It's very different. And, and it is hard. So we can say, with a straight face to someone who is say an ALK positive metastatic lung cancer that, you know, uh, you've got probably better than 50% chance that you're going to live a number of years, maybe even longer than five years. But when you're 40 years old, living five or six or even eight years is not that great. And when they finally come to the point where things are not working anymore and they go to pass on, it's it's really hard when you've built that long relationship with them. I know that uh, perhaps other types of oncologists have dealt with that perhaps, you know, the breast cancer oncologists and whatnot for a long time, but that is, um, it, it took a real change in my thinking to deal with that. And, uh, so you're a sweets person. I'm more of a savory person. And so I think, uh, pizza, uh, is my, uh, go-to comfort food when I've had a really tough week. And I think it's important to share that, you know, we're no, all strong all the time. And I think that just shows our human side. And I think patients appreciate that mm-hmm. because we're in this together. And, you know, I cannot be in their shoes because I don't have the disease. But I think sharing our feelings and our struggles is strengths the relationship with our patients. I completely agree. I think, you know, I don't at all uh, subscribe to the to the attitude that it you know it's not okay to cry in front of your patients. You know it's not okay necessarily to cry the first time you meet someone because they're in a miserable situation. But in someone that you've built a relationship with over years, that you've struggled through ups and downs, and and then when things finally get to the point where you're perhaps discussing going home with hospice or stopping treatment, yeah, I mean I think that's perfectly fine. I mean I, that's that just shows that you're human and that you've really that you care for them um, and you care what happens to them. I also think though, that it is very important that you develop strategies for how to feel that, feel those feelings, uh, to empathize with that patient and their families and be there in that moment. And then you have to be able to mourn and then let it go. Because if you take it home with you, first of all, you're going to eat way too much ice cream. But second of all, um, it, it, it really does contribute to, I think, emotional uh, stress and burnout to, to have to carry that burden with you all the time. And I don't pretend to know exactly how to do that, but um, 
you know, I, I personally am able to make a, a disconnect from work. And then when I leave and go home to my family, um, that I try not to take those same, you know, uh, sadness home as much as possible. It's not always possible, but uh, I think it's important. And I think moving on that is, you know, celebrating the little wins is also very important. Like I, I saved cars and pictures and all of that. And one of my mentors told me to make a happy box and I have a happy box and which, <laughs> you know, I put things, some of my patients are Harley Davidson riders and when they're in treatment and they get to ride, I don't know, crazy miles, I always get a patch. I don't have a jacket, but I should get one jacket. But like I say, those patches, because those are little wins that my patient was able to drive from the Midwest to Florida, mm -hmm. like their motorcycle. So I, I think that's something that has helped me a lot is the happy box to go back and see those little wins. And, and I think it is important that you remember that, yes, so many of the people that we care for will go on to die, but for every moment up to that moment, they're alive and we're helping them and getting to experience with them their lives as they go on. And, and most of our patients... I don't know, most of our listeners are probably also thoracic oncologists, but for those that aren't, it seems like, it. boy, it must be so depressing to be here and talking to someone with a terminal illness. But the truth is, they don't think like that, and I don't think like that, and I know you don't either. They, they're coming from work, and they're planning their Christmas, and they're you know living their lives, and our job is to try to help them live it as normally as possible so that they are not thinking about the fact that they have cancer all the time, and they can actually compartmentalize that away. And they, you have lots of these good times and you have these memories where they bring you trinkets and presents and, and you want to remember that that was the vast majority of the time you spent with them was good time. And then only at the end was it sad. And that's okay too. You know, it's part of life to experience the end of it as well. Yeah. And I think, you know, to loop that, I think COVID-19 has been there's many people on the front lines that are very thankful, but for oncologists, I think the lack of human touch has been very hard. I'm a hugger. I hug people. It's part of my culture. It's part of what I do. And my patients love hugging me, and we hug for good, for bad. We dance. I made promise of dancing the Macarena with my patients if they get to do something that we were planning to, right? Like right. smoking. If you quit smoking, you're going to dance the Macarena when you come back. <laughs> And I have done it many times, but I think COVID-19 brought the isolation for patients. And I don't know, for me, I wrote an entire article about how much I miss hugging. And I think that has added to the burden of the oncologist is just missing that from our patients. It's really been hard on everyone. I mean, imagine how hard it's been on um, just, just, normal people not being able to interact with their families and their friends and see their parents and grandparents and, and, you know, kids not interacting at school. Now imagine that this could potentially have been, you know, the most stressful year of your life due to a, a really tough illness. And for many of them, even the last year of their lives, and they didn't get to, to spend that time with friends and family. And for us, we were just talking about how meaningful it is for us to 
bond with these patients and form these relationships, I think that is why many people choose to go into oncology because nobody has the same kinds of relationships that you can form as, as what we do. And now we sit across the room from each other with a mask and a face shield on. And, you know, I'm not sure if I would even recognize some of my patients in a grocery store without their masks on. It's, it's completely changed things and not for the better. I mean, it's necessary. I completely understand that, but, um, there's no doubt that we've lost a lot of the human side of caring for our patients with this. Um, I'm not a hugger necessarily of, of my patients most of the time, unless they volunteer it. But um, even just that, the aspect of being able to talk to them without a mask on, um, I think that's actually one of the things I like about telemedicine <laughs> is not having to do that. Yeah. And I think it has been challenging if you have that relationship and that you know, and then change. Um, I think it has been hard for, as you say, everyone. Um, and as we continue to talk about the practice of being a thoracic oncologist, I think it's important to mention that we have seen in social media the new challenges with pre-authorizations, more administrative burdens, uh, more peer-to-peer -peer reviews. So for people that are not familiar with peer-to-peer -peer reviews, this is when uh, oncologists talks to another physician that may or may not be an oncology to discuss uh, something that has been denied by the insurance. It can be imaging, it can be chemotherapy, anti-emetics, and I think more and more in social media, we're seeing it. And we're seeing, you know, how people are like tagging these companies and because delays treatment, it delays care, and add this extra burden to the doctor, not only to like be there, learn, do stay up to date, but you know, be on call for 45 minutes. So I think that has, I have seen it more on social media. And I would love to hear, you know, what is your take in these increasing demands from insurance companies? Well, I, I, I think what you've hit upon is probably one of the biggest sources of unhappiness and dissatisfaction in, in medicine these days is the uh, the administrative burdens that have gotten in the way of patient care. And this is, you know, it starts with the fact that everything is just way too expensive. The medicines that we use are just ridiculously costly. Um, the immune therapies, the oral tyrosine kinases, you know, it is not unheard of at all that these are 15 or $20,000 a month. And because they work so well, Patients are on them for a really long time. And so um, it is not surprising that things would be put in place to try to reduce the cost of care. The problem is, of course, is that no one would have chosen insurance companies arbitrarily trying to deny care as the way around this. And so what we're stuck with um, is that we have things like, for example, prior authorization. So it makes sense. You don't want to have wasteful care. You want to use an expensive drug or a test. And the insurance company says, well, we want to figure out um, that this is appropriate and actually not something crazy and, and overuse. And therefore, we're going to demand you do a prior authorization. The problem is it's become way overboard from what it should be. In fact, studies even a couple of years ago were showing that uh, primary care physicians were spending up to 16 hours a week, uh, not 
they and their staff processing prior authorizations for things that were completely routine and guideline-driven uh, care that almost always got approved as soon as the prior authorization went through. So it wasn't even things that were being denied. It's just that you had to go through it ahead of time. And these days, I'm routinely seeing prior authorizations for things like MRI scans for brain metastases or PET scans for staging so that we can start treatment for lung cancer. And now it's taking weeks. They're, they're demanding to review how appropriate it is. So it really does delay care. And then, um, of course, they sometimes deny it. Even if it's completely routine care, they will deny it and require so-called peer-to-peer, which um, I think most of us would disagree with that name because it's not always someone who really is experienced in that disease who's who's the person on the other end of the phone. But essentially, you have to schedule a call with someone to explain yourself, and then they decide whether or not it's appropriate or not. But the fact is, the vast majority of the time, they approve it based upon the exact same information they'd already been given. So the only reason for doing the peer-to-peer much of the time is just making you go through the process of doing it. And the reason they do that is they hope you won't. They hope you'll change what you're going to do or that you just won't have time and you won't do it and they can deny it. And that has been shown to reduce costs because then they don't have to pay for it. And so patients are actually suffering. And so it's it's really a huge issue. I know that uh, ASCO is trying to lobby the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services to study how often Medicare Advantage plans uh, require peer-to-peers and prior authorizations and deny care. But the truth is, uh, this really happens all the time, and there's very little attention to it. We see it on social media because patients and their doctors speak up. Uh, But you shouldn't have to shame an insurance company on social media in order to get around this. And Uh, So it it is becoming a huge problem that, uh, unfortunately, I don't really have a good solution for. And, you know, Nate, it's understandable the behind all of this, but for some things that are like standard care is what is very difficult, I think, for physicians, nurse practitioners, and other healthcare providers to go through this loop when, you know, you pull the NCCN guidelines and it's like, it's there, right? Right. It is right. level one evidence, and then you're like, and then no, I, I think I think people think that these peer to peers and these prior auths, it's because we these wasteful American physicians who spend billions and billions of dollars doing unnecessary knee surgeries and and you know heart catheterizations and things like that. Uh, but the fact is that that's not true at all. They're, they're denying everything, even the really basic stuff. You know, the, the level one evidence, as you said, completely FDA approved. Uh, it's in the care pathways. It's in the NCCN guideline. They just deny it anyway. And they make you go through the process of scheduling an appointment in the middle of your, you know, 10-hour day when you're doing other things to try to speak to someone. And then they go, oh, well, of course I'm going to approve that. But you've just spent 45 minutes on something that, Uh, you really didn't have time to do. It didn't reduce costs. It didn't uh, improve patient care. All it did was waste your time. And that's really, I think, what the goal is of this, is to try to make it so aggravating that people will stop stop doing it. And, you know, many people don't have time to do the peer-to-peers. And so it doesn't get... uh, And then, of course, what happens is the patients suffer. So this is clearly not the best solution. Um, If... If... 
we could find a way to have regulators require insurance companies to report how often they did this. If we were able to shine a public light on this, I think it would go away very quickly, but it's very hard to do. So I'm glad we're getting a chance to talk about this on our podcast because everyone will hear it now. And I think it's important because there's two things. First, I come from a place of privilege. I'm an academic site. I only see one disease. I have limited clinical time. But for 80% of the oncologists, Outside of thoracic oncologists, OE and thoracic oncologists, they're seeing patients Monday to Friday, many of them. So when you have a schedule in clinic from eight to five, right, patient after patient, mm-hmm. the burden appears to peers to community oncologists is so large. And some of them have support, but the whole thing is has to be up here, right? So I think that adds a lot. And I just did appear to peer this morning. And I called my patient after because she was so anxious about it. She was like, why they will not allow a PET scan? I was like, I'm so sorry. It makes no sense. But let me just, you know, pull the NCCN guidelines and send it again. So the, the anxiety of not knowing if your insurance we approve something that makes sense, it's very hard. And then it's the other burden to a newly diagnosed patient with lung cancer. You don't, they don't need more. So I think that's that's very, it's two aspects. I worry about the community oncologists and I also worry about the added burden that patients are getting with this. Oh, and that, you know, and peer-to-peers and whatnot are are certainly a burden and certainly anxiety provoking for patients. I would say in our field of lung cancer, one of the biggest things that I've noticed recently is we use a lot of oral drugs now. So for someone who has, say, an EGFR mutation or an ALK gene fusion or now, you know, RET or MET uh, gene fusions, we have these unbelievably effective oral therapies, which, and it's so exciting. You're like, congratulations, you've got, we've got this finding. I'm just going to write you a prescription. You don't need chemotherapy. And the patients are excited. And then I have to stop and I have to warn them. I'm like, I cannot tell you that you you can't walk into a pharmacy and fill this today. We're going to start the process of getting it authorized. And when I first started um, practicing and we were just using drugs like erlotinib and then a few years later, crizotinib, you know, it was maybe two or $3,000 a month list price. But of course, with a copay, it was a lot less than that. Now we're talking about drugs that cost perhaps even $20,000 a month. And so a 10% or a 20% copay is way beyond the means of almost anyone to be able to pay for this. And this is per month, not just a one-time cost. And so almost all of them have to apply for either free drug or reduced cost drug, or if they have Medicare and they're not allowed to get free drug, they can apply for uh, foundation uh, help with covering their copays and whatnot. But it's now where it used to take 48 hours. It's now routinely taking sometimes two or three weeks after uh, I prescribe a drug for patients to get it. And that is incredibly anxiety provoking. And sometimes they're very symptomatic during this time. So uh, this is definitely an issue where I think though, and it's all driven just by how expensive everything is. I mean, if it didn't cost much at all, it wouldn't be a big deal. Something is going to have to be done. And And I really do think it's reaching a point where it can't continue like this much longer. And I think, you know, we're asking, you know, to get more NGS results and patients are waiting for the NGS results, right? So there's a wait mm-hmm. there. We have plasma, but, you know, tissue still takes longer. 
and there are challenges between tissue and plasma that we're not going to talk today. But when you have that targetable mutation, I often like put my patients, no in a sense of fear, but like I prepared them. Like I'm going to prescribe the drug and we need to, it's going to take a while or because I'm more used to encountering obstacles that, you know, the prescription goes through and the patient gets a drug in a week. It's like the opposite. And sometimes my patients call me and they're like, no copay, don't tell nobody. Like, it feels like we're like hiring something when they are getting their insurance, they're paying their insurance every month. Mm-hmm. But my patients feel like they're cheating the system because they didn't have to pay a high copay. And, and they're like, you know, like, like trying to sneak out. It's like, Dr. Duma, there is no copay. And I'm like, I forgot <laughs> because you're dealing with a fatal disease. Many of my ladies had jungle ch- children and now you feel like you're sneaking around because you didn't have to pay $3,000 a month. No, it's really, um, unfortunately we live in a country where, um, there is a, a huge disparity between obviously disparity in healthcare outcomes across all types of healthcare in the United States. But we see that in our lung cancer patients as well. You know, I, I have patients who get their medicine covered in 48 hours with no copay and then the people who just absolutely can't afford anything and they have to apply for free drug, which takes a while. Um, we do have these protections in place for them, but it's not the way it should be. I, I think, honestly, um, you're absolutely right. They shouldn't have to go through the stress of worrying about all this. I recognize that these drugs are very expensive. Um, I think the solution would be if things were not as expensive. Um, and then we had sort of a single pair that would pay for necessary care without having to go jump through all of these hoops. But uh, I don't know that that's going to happen anytime soon. Yeah. And I think for the people who are listening, something that I found to help be helpful is that to assure your patients that you're going to advocate for them. Because mm-hmm. The last thing you want is then to feel abandoned after you prescribe the drug and that's my job. No, we're going to do this together. We're going to figure out how to get this drug to you. I think that really helps my patients. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I've never, I've never once experienced a scenario where I couldn't eventually get it, but it is taking longer than it used to without a doubt. Yeah. And, you know, patients that don't have, you know, nobody is illegal in this world, but they don't have a documented status in the U.S. Those patients are ghosts after they get diagnosed with cancer. They're not reported in most of the databases, and they cannot apply for many assistance programs. And that's a podcast of his own, but mm-hmm, mm-hmm. there are more and more layers to these obstacles. That I think taking into account that, you know, preparing for, it's like preparing for work when I get a, result that is an EGFR or ALK or ROS1 or any mutations like, okay, now is the hardest part. Let's get this drug. No, it is. I mean, it, it is hard to remember sometimes how lucky and fortunate we are to have access to these phenomenal treatments and tests and scans. I mean, it's almost like magic looking at these incredible PET scans and the incredible radiation machines that we've got and these ridiculously effective targeted therapies that can basically make the cancer sort of melt away and patients feel really good and they have minimal side effects and can live for years longer. And then the second that you think about this exact same patient who may be living in 
I don't know, 80% of the planet uh, would not have access to any of these things and, um, you know, would go on to have very much the experience that the patients from 20 years ago would, where they get diagnosed with lung cancer and they may get chemotherapy and they don't live very long and they, uh, they go on to die when they could have had a much better uh, outcome if all of these wonderful treatments and, and tests that we have were available to everyone. So one of the things that we absolutely have to do and have to advocate for is for expanding these incredible treatments to be available everywhere. Yeah. And I think that's important as we move forward, you know, we are conversation, we're seeing more patients and more physicians and healthcare providers advocating for patients via social media. This can be tagging the insurance company or just venting about the challenges. How can someone carefully advocate for their patients this way? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think that it is completely responsible to advocate on social media for what you believe in, in terms of, you know, policy changes, changes maybe at the FDA or through your, to your politicians that they should make changes to the way healthcare uh, is run. And, um, you know, for example, advocating for the Affordable Care Act, I think we can advocate for particular laws and whatnot, perhaps, uh, you know, if you get involved, for example, through ASCO and the advocacy community, I think we can um, certainly raise awareness. So if you like you, Narjust, or I, who are lucky enough to have uh, followings on social media and, and perhaps even media outlets might pick up if we talk about something and try to raise awareness that lung cancer is an incredibly important disease to try to reduce the stigma so that there's more research funding. I have to admit, I'm not sure how effective advocating for them, for example, say calling out an insurance company because they denied a payment or they denied a test or would not uh, cover a particular drug that we thought was necessary. I mean, maybe that works, um, but I'm not. I'm not sure. Have you, have you ever done that uh, before? I've certainly seen oncologists getting out and actually uh, complaining to uh, particular insurance companies or certain companies that uh, review claims uh, and then make denials. I, I haven't done it because you know the population I treat are very unique, and I'm always in the fear of disclosing their private information, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I have the fear of that. And I think I can maybe make a bigger impact. I have a a superpower that I earned from my mother, who's a surgeon, to be very certain on the phone. So that has helped me when communicating with insurance company companies. And you know, always have the data with you because right. the data speaks for you. So I think that has helped me. I haven't done it in social media. I think maybe one day I post it because somebody a company denied the anti-emetics for cisplatin. And I was just outraged. It's like, how am I going to get cisplatin without anti-emetics, right? Right. That's ridiculous. Yeah. I'll prove the cisplatin, but no, you need to like try it again. I think, I think sharing things on social media, I mean, I think it helps us because that is in many ways, our support community is, is our peers and being able to share these experiences and, and find out that other people are experiencing the same thing and you're not alone is important. And that certainly, you know, I do think uh, 
the lung cancer social media community has helped me deal with just the general difficulty of the pandemic uh, or of changes in medical care that have been frustrating. I think that the interactions with patients and patient advocates has been incredibly powerful in, in advocating for more research and understanding and reducing the stigma associated with lung cancer um, tied to tobacco smoking. But yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I've ever changed someone just by complaining about uh, someone denied insurance. But I, I do wish that we could get uh, the media a little more up in arms and investigating some of what's going on here, because I really do think that, you know, there, there would be a lot more public sympathy for people with cancer going through such a tough time and also having to deal with denial of routine care. Yeah. And as we are wrapping up, I have a question before, you know, we end the podcast, uh, we really would like to get one or two personal wisdom to junior faculty and fellows who are thinking of or starting a thoracic oncology practice from you, because I have found it helpful for myself. And I think it's important to share Nate's knowledge with the rest of the thoracic oncology community. Well, thank you for that opportunity. I wish I could uh, uh, remember all the pearls that I gave you back when we first talked. I remember that conversation in San Diego. But I think that if you're just starting out in an academic practice, um, just out of fellowship, the first thing to remember is you're going to have more free time than you've ever had before and that you will ever have again in your career. And so use that time to build relationships with other people that you will need in order to take care of your patients in your career. So for example, become good friends with your thoracic surgeons. Uh, make sure that you attend and speak up at Tumor Board. Make sure that you take the time to go and meet all of your interventional pulmonologists and interventional radiologists, your pathologists, and be friends with the referring general oncologists, especially if you have clinical trials available at your, at your center. Because if you can make yourself the go-to person that they will call whenever they know that they have a lung cancer patient and they need someone to help them take care of them, I think that that will open up a tremendous amount of doors um, for you if you actually want to get things done in your career. That also goes for academics. So explore outside just the people in your group. Explore outside just the surgeons and radiation doctors that you know. Check out your local research you know, institute if you're part of a university, the people that are doing basic research at the at that university. If you're part of a consortium, talk to people at the other sites that you can potentially work with. You'd be surprised at some of the exciting things that are going on. Um, some of the collaborations that I have built were just based upon reaching out to someone who is doing uh, research at Case Western Reserve University. And now, you know, it's led to grant funding and, and tremendously exciting projects. So I think that um, really trying to cast as broad a net as possible to build relationships and look for projects and look for opportunities to collaborate. And then, you know, I hear a lot of people being advised to learn how to say no. And that is absolutely true. To some extent, you have to preserve your work-life balance. You have to protect yourself so that you have time for yourself, for your family. But at the same time, I think the first year of your faculty development is not the time to get used to saying no a lot. I think uh, uh, saying yes to opportunities. And then once you've 
filled up your time with exciting opportunities. And perhaps some of those opportunities are not so exciting, but they're things that you're still going to be very valuable. Editorial opportunities, reviewing grants on uh, study sections, things like that. Then down the road, you can pare down a little bit more and start to focus a little bit more on the things that you're interested in. So just, just my two cents. I think that's very important. Yes, you give me the advice about the time. And one thing that now I repeat that you told me was if you, you don't publish it, it didn't happen. <laughs> so I told my mentees that, and I do give you credit because when the abstract is submitted in February last week, two weeks ago, I told them, all right, the abstract is in, but if you didn't publish, it didn't happen. And I have followed that advice, I think, every day. I was like, uh-uh, let's write this manuscript. It is a negative study, but it needs to be published. That is absolutely true. A huge amount of these abstracts never get published, but you've already done all the work of putting together the analysis. Just keep writing and write the manuscript at the same time. Yeah, It's so a good habit to get into. wisdom for Nate that I should make a T-shirt. So we're wrapping up. Thank you so much. I would like especially thank Dr. Nathan Pennell for making the time to speak with me today. Any final words, Nate? Oh, I don't know if I have any other pearls of wisdom. Thank you for taking the time to listen to me ramble on about some of these topics. I do want uh, to say that I'm incredibly proud of the career that you've built for yourself already so young and so early in your career to become a superstar. And I'm very excited to be on this podcast with you. So thanks for inviting me. Thank you. I'm not eating chocolate today after that. So this is the episode for Lung Cancer Considered. We hope you tune in every first and third Monday of every month. Don't forget to like the podcast, share with your colleagues. And I think this episode is going to be a great episode for the people that have to commute. We're going to have the opportunity to laugh and learn from Dr. Pennell. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Concert. You can find all our podcasts on our website, islc.org, in our newsroom, or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, write comments, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues. 